You're listening to ForwardConf, an event inspired to keep you moving forward. Serverless, AWS Lambda, DynamoDB, Kubernetes, DevOps, these have all been the buzzwords for the past year. Our guest today not only lives and breathes the world of serverless, he even built his own product to support that community. Rafael, welcome to ForwardConf. Hi, pleasure to be here. I'm joined today also by my curious co-hosts, Mr. Josh Johnson and David Roberts. Welcome to you both as well. Hello. Thank you very much, Ryan. So, Rafael, DevOps in general has been sort of the, the hot topic for pretty much all of 2019 and now still into 2020. Uh, you know, if I'm just now kind of trying to catch up, <laughs> maybe I've been under a rock. Why does serverless matter now? You know, what's sort of all the hype about? What should we be paying attention to here? There's a lot of things to cover here, but why serverless matters is that it allows developers and basically all the makers to deliver the value from the business perspective in the shortest time possible. We don't have to worry about the infrastructure, about underlying servers, machines, maintenance, systems, networking, all that stuff that was troubling us for many, many years, it's now basically gone. I mean, not gone because Amazon's or Google or Microsoft engineers are doing that in this cloud thing. And um, yeah, basically it's done by them. They are well paid. <laughs> they are the brightest minds in the industry and they are doing it well. So once we have those solid and well-placed foundation that we can build on top of, um, we can purely focus on just building the business logic delivering the value. Um, that also allows us to be really agile, um, innovate faster. Also the time to market is really fast. So you can iterate with your product really quickly. And um, yeah, I think that that's the, 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 the most selling point in this whole trend. And so you're obviously working on actual production level projects with serverless, right? Yes, exactly. Um, I've been working on few hobby projects. I'm also working right now um, on a production grade um, project for Xteam, which is also serverless based. Um, I've been doing a few in the past and I can tell that this um, sub branch of engineering is really innovating really fast. I would say I would compare the pace of innovation is comparable to the front-end development, where also, um, you know, we have the jokes around that every month we have a new JavaScript framework and stuff like that. So um, yeah, in serverless space, we don't even know what the serverless means, right? Because the term itself is so vague. What does it mean to be serverless? If it's not serverless, then, then it's what? Um, so there's even a problem of definition. And if we don't have a clear definition, if we don't have, you know, uh, we are on a, we are we are not on the same page when it comes to the meaning. Uh, yeah, there are so many problems. Uh, what's actually that is? <laughs> yeah, is there a new name coming soon? I mean, obviously there is still a server in a serverless architecture. So are they are they starting to come up with new names? So actually, I'm quite a big fan of not serverless but 
service full because serverless is not descriptive and service full i would say is because it emphasizes the thing that we are using actually services and we are not trying to build everything by our own but we are trying to glue few existing pieces together which are called services um yeah it's like try, trying to build something from the lego bricks i would say and that can be also described as the serverless so i mean you mentioned you have worked on production level serverless architecture or service full architecture as we'll say, maybe start calling it soon um are, are you seeing all the benefits that you mentioned or are you seeing more challenges than benefits at this point i can definitely see the benefits i mean i can create a feature um click just commit push then it gets automatically deployed and i can see the change on a staging server within five or 10 minutes. And it's really amazing. I don't have to ask anyone for permission. I don't have to ask for, I don't know, provisioning some containers or databases or maybe some subnet or whatever. Um, I can do everything on my own. I don't have to worry if this thing scales, um, if I have to patch um, system oper operating system to a newest version. Um, so yeah, it definitely helps me to um, deliver value faster to the end client. And, and th that's obviously good, but serverless also brings a whole new set of challenges because it requires a definitely new way of thinking than in traditional service server full development. Um, there are a few fundamental I would say changes um, which, are, which have a really big impact on how you should develop, create and code your application. The first thing that is, uh, I would say the most fundamental is that everything is temporary. You basically don't have this one central place, which was previously the server that kept all the data that was performing computations that had a lot of RAM. Everything now is dispersed in this cloud and um, you need to be aware of the fact that there is no such thing as local anymore there are just a bunch of small lambda functions and services and there is this service called s3 which is blob storage so you should definitely um, put everything there and as soon as your function starts you need to download first things from this point you cannot just access your hard drive uh, just like on traditional server or, or container um, and also it allows a whole new um, architectural patterns uh, for instance the event-driven uh, computing which is basically um, that the system consists of this big um, events bus and to this event we attach a bunch of things that are reacting to the changes that appear in this stream. Um, you could do that previously uh, with servers too, but now it's much easier when you can easily plug things into the bus and unplug them later. Um, and it's also really easily scalable. Um, because the cloud providers care about uh, the demand 
if you have 10 events per minute, that's no problem. Cloud provider will provide you 10 Lambda invocations in a minute. Um, if you have also 10 million invocations or 10 million events, the cloud provider will also take care of that. Uh, so, yeah. You mentioned there's a lot of uh, innovation going on, probably even more so than a lot of different areas of tech right now. It's kind of like the Wild West days of front end one. You know, we went from Backbone to Angular to React all within a few months sort of feeling. What are those exciting things that are rapidly happening right now in serverless? That's a really great question because I feel like every company has its own vision. And also there are all other companies which are trying to merge those visions together to, click, to create this multi-cloud solution, which also prevents you from lacking into one provider. Um, but you can clearly see that AWS is really pushing you towards the service full approach. They are trying to provide you a service for almost every business uh, need. They have machine learning, they have storage, they have compute, they have predictions, they have video streaming. Um, basically anything that you can imagine, Amazon basically already invented that. And most of the time, your job is to just plug all those pieces together. Um, so I'd say this is their approach. And of course, other cloud providers are also following this trend. But um, the differences are, for instance, um, in between AWS and um, Google, where AWS invented Lambda functions. And these are those really short-lived containers which are um, created upon a request, then they are processing requests, return the response and they die. Um, the Google, on the other hand, came with the concept of the cloud run, which is more like starting and stopping containers, the classical Docker containers on demand. Um, so in AWS, this is, um, I would say that the compute unit it's much smaller and they are rather trying to um, have those Lambda functions to be this glue between the services while the Google um, thinks that the way is to put all those monoliths into serverless containers, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, again, making that comparison to the front end world, all of that was from open source communities. Here we're seeing a lot of the innovation actually being driven by massive budgets, massive companies. Does that make the innovation even more rapid? It's hard to say. I think like uh, I feel like the, the innovation is coming right now from two sides. I would say. I mean, like yeah, definitely the innovation is coming from the big players who have the money, and they are playing on the economies of scale. They have servers. They have can create massive savings, everything is cheaper for them. But the open source community is not sleeping. They are constantly improving the developer tools. They are constantly improving the ways how you can use those cloud providers. Um, and to give you an example, um, for instance, AWS created the service called AWS AppSync and AWS Amplify. And those two are basically a toolkit for creating fully serverless um, APIs, REST-powered and GraphQL-powered um, APIs, where you only define the, the schema, you only define 
what kind of data models you want to have. Once you've done that, you only type two or three commands like amplify, publish and amplify push or something like that. And AWS creates everything that you need for this API to be working. So <laughs> basically you only define your data structure and, A and AWS takes care of everything else. It creates databases, it creates the actual API gateway, it creates the fetching logic, it creates the authentication and authorization layer. And it's, it's really a magic. Um, it's really, I would say it's really great because it's even faster um, for, for developers to, to deliver the, the business value. Um, and this is actually a huge step in the no-code movement because um, what you can also observe is that we are writing a dramatically less amount of code with each year as we are, as we are moving the more logic in the hands of cloud providers. I mean, like they are doing those generic things and we are all only writing the business logic. So, um, so yeah, I think that this is uh, a, a huge step in a no-code movement. Yeah, how, how does how does the community feel? I mean, the no-code movement is obviously very popular, but how does the community really feel about being that dependent on these big companies to number one, stay, keep their servers running, and number two, having again, so much control over all the tools and services and, and code bases driving a lot of this. Is there a healthy relationship between the community and these big players or what is that looking like right now? <laughs> <laughs> Was that the evil laugh of the uh, of Amazon? <laughs> Yeah, the laugh of Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the that was the. I'm not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So many people are scared of the vendor lock-in, which is this thing that once you commit to all those services, like you commit to use their um, algorithms, their their services, you create your business on top of that. You're kind of tied to them and once they for instance rise their prices because they can do that why not um, you'll be screwed so many people are um, are scared of that possibility but if you take a look at historical data you can see that in this whole history of AWS they've never did that actually the prices are constantly going lower and lower um, so yeah Many people are scared of that, the vendor locking, but I think that we are all trying to achieve something good and we are all trying to make a business. Um, so they are making anything, everything to gain more customers. And if they get happy customers like us, um, they get more of them and they make more money. So that's kind of logical for me. Um, hmm. You can kind of defend from being locked to the one cloud provider by using some architectural patterns like um, the hexagonal infrastructure architecture, sorry, um, which kind of allows you to plug some different inputs and outputs 
and services via those, those things called adapters, where the business logic remains the same, but you just inject different, those adapters between your logic and those cloud providers. And it gives you freedom to some degree, but if you would like to fully unleash the power of the cloud, and you have to really commit to that. So yeah, you can try to escape, but it's not really possible. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you see any pressure, you know, where you've got Microsoft and Google and Amazon, yep. is there any pressure on them to actually converge into something that's adaptable? You know, like we had with Browser Wars, there was kind of, um, they were both competing to see who gets to write the spec. You know, is there anything of that or, or they don't really care? They're just doing their own thing. Um, I feel like the cloud providers are kind of inspiring themselves uh, because mm. you can clearly see that AWS came first with the functions, later Google and Azure followed with their implementations of functions. And then the, I would say the revolution started and we saw a, a massive amount of new services coming in the table, um, improving the, the, the possibilities. I don't know, um, AWS, for instance, introduced EventBridge, but I'm pretty sure that thing like EventBridge was before available in Azure. Um, right. So so yeah, I think like the, the cloud players are borrowing the solutions from themselves. Um, uh, and... Uh, so they're talking, they're talking at least. That's, that's a good sign. Yeah, they are borrowing ideas. If they are talking, I wouldn't say so. Um, hmm. AWS is pretty hostile, I would say, to the multi-cloud strategy even. Okay. Because um, if you take a look at their documentation or marketing material, they don't mention multi-cloud anywhere. It's like, if you go with AWS, you'd better not talk with Google or Azure. You're a jet <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. Till you die. So if, if I haven't committed to a particular vendor, is there um, you know, an upside or a downside um, to picking one of them over another based on my application? So could I look at my application and say, I'm better off choosing Google for, for this instance, or, or I'm better off choosing Amazon for, for something else? Is there any uh, guidelines to that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So all those cloud providers are providing some services and some cloud providers are better at some type of computations and some types of services than the others. For instance, I've heard a lot of really good things about um, Google's BigQuery service, which is used to analyze a massive amount of data. Um, so logically, if you need to analyze uh, massive, massive amounts of data uh, using this particular service, you already try to have all this data inside Google data center and it's not logical to pull that data from their servers to another cloud provider because the just the cost from the transferring between the, the two providers would be insane. So many times it's like they have one really good working service which is essential for your business and because of that you choose your cloud provider. Um, Many times it's also driven by the business. Uh, yeah, purely on calculations. 
um, some services are basically cheaper uh, in, in Google or some are basically cheaper in Azure. I don't have exact you know, numbers to give you right now, but um, I've heard from other companies that they've been evaluate, evaluating few cloud providers and the decision, decision was made purely based on numbers. Um, another thing might be the Kubernetes, for instance, which is not serverless offering per se, but the Kubernetes project is mostly developed by Google. So and now a logical thing is to, if you would like to have a Kubernetes cluster working well, um, to be the most up-to-date thing, you would probably run that on a Google Cloud because they have the, the, the best offering. Um, paradoxically, the most amount of Kubernetes clusters is running on AWS, at least that's the information that we got from last year reInvent. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know why is that, but it is what it is. Would you say there are any um, scenarios uh, when it'd be a bad idea to move towards serverless or serviceful? Sometimes you just can't move to serverless because of some compliance requirements, right? There are some medical companies or some, I don't know, military or, or government that don't want to share any of a single bit of their information with other um, customers of the cloud. Because obviously, if you're going to run software of the cloud, in the cloud, your containers will share servers or racks or you know, cables with, with other um, customers of the cloud. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that someone, sometimes your client simply doesn't like Amazon or Microsoft or Google. And I've seen that many times. People kind of act emotionally. They say like, I don't like Google and they don't want to hear that. So it's totally, um, you know, based on emotions. Yeah. And also if you have, um, if you need a massive amount of compute power, for instance. Um, you're doing, for instance, something like machine learning. You need, a, you need a massive amount of graphic cards or specialized chip chips or things like that. You know, uh, functions may not work well here. You would probably need some specialized machines from NVIDIA or Google, which are made specifically for machine learning purposes. Uh, and functions which are CPU-based are not good at it. I've seen you can write uh, Lambda functions in multiple different programming languages. Is, th is there uh, more tooling for any of them or, or any of them preferred languages? Yeah, so uh, based, on, based on statistics, the most of Lambda functions are written in, in Python and in Node.js. Uh, but there are more runtimes supported there's definitely the C-sharp, the Java, uh, but recently AWS introduced layers, which is something like a, a sidecar pattern to do your Lambda function, which allows you to run anything you want, any kind of language that you can imagine inside your Lambda function. And that created this explosion of creativity in the serverless open source community because people started running bash scripts, some crazy languages like COBOL or Reason, or, you know, even C, which is not super productive, but yeah, people can do that for some very specific purposes. 
so basically right now you can run almost anything uh, inside your Lambda function. So how important is it going to be for developers to have some sort of serverless experience looking ahead for the next few years? And, and what, what is sort of that baseline level of experience that you need to have to work within a serverless architecture? Uh, I think it's going to be more and more important because I feel like we are moving away from this traditional model of the division between the front end and the back end when we have this clear distinction that we are working on the uh, this end of the protocol and I'm working on this end of protocol. Like I'm doing with I'm dealing with the databases, with validations, models and stuff like that while I'm making things visually appealing. Um, due to cloud and all those services, that barrier is, is you know, it's, it's being destroyed. Those competences are blending into one role, which I like to call a cloud native developer, which is a person that is capable of creating visually appearing interfaces based on the components library that you can use. Um, there are many of them in, on the internet. Um, basically, uh, actually using the design systems, uh, which are basically pre-made components that you can style um, according to your needs and then just plug them to the cloud to all those very powerful services you don't need to know how to write um, back-end language code you don't need to know how to learn some C-sharp or Java or some other complicated languages you can just create something even in a no-code no tools you can visually create some interface by dragging and dropping some building blocks, and then with some lines of code connected to Amplify, which is then connecting to some other services, like even predictions or streaming or real-time chat or whatever. Uh, so I feel like instead of going deep into one niche, instead of diving deep into one language and its quirks and weird things, so I think that as developers, we need to change our way of thinking from diving deep into one category, one language, one framework into a more wide approach where we need to know what are the available building blocks and how we can connect them. Uh, the knowledge of services and the possibilities is going to be crucial because you can't create services which will be competing with the cloud providers because they are created by the brightest minds but you can really create something really cool and you can do it really fast by connecting the existing things together into one great product and yeah i believe that you can create the most value by in on in the intersection of many things together um, so yeah, I think that the breadth-first approach is going to be really more important than depth-first approach. That's really cool. Well, that, that obviously leads really well into DinoBase. Now, DinoBase is a product that you created. I mean, was this your first product and, and what was the story behind it? Yeah, so it wasn't my first product. I was creating products since I've started my programming career because I think I started when I was 
16 years old by creating a mobile game. And my first engineering job, I would say, was creating my own game. Uh, so it all started from products. And I've learned that I absolutely cherish having the ownership and having the, the, the ability to decide which direction to take, what I should take care of, what's the most important, and how I'd like to drive this project forward. Um, later on, I've moved with my software engineering career, working for other companies, but I've always felt that there is something missing. I was working from, you know, from ticket to ticket, from sprint to sprint, and it was kind of mindless job. You receive an assignment, you complete it, you issue a pull request, it gets reviewed, merged, deployed, and that's it. And that's the end of the story. Then you change a company, you completely forget about it. And if you are working in a software development house, even the projects can be changing every two or three months. So you don't have this emotional attachment to the thing that you're creating. And I think it's absolutely essential if you'd like to create something which is really good. You need something that creates this intrinsic motivation that pushes you forward. And if you have something which is like a child, I would say, you know, you, you can't imagine better motivation. It's better than money. It's better than appreciation because it's very your thing. Um, so throughout the years, I was trying to <laughs> fill out my spare time building other things. And because my first product, which was game, uh, it was called Voxel Rush. It appeared to be quite massive success because it was downloaded over 2 million times. Um, so the bar was already set pretty high and I had high expectations set for myself, which I was trying to meet. Um, it was creating a lot of frustration because, you know, um, creating a kind of success that would be comparable to this one wasn't easy. And I was trying, I, I released a, a second game and third game. Of course, they went miserable and they weren't as successful. So I was even more frustrated. Um, then I moved away from games. I started creating software. And when I've entered the web development, I've created an open source module, which was called the Express Status Monitor. It was a self-hosted monitoring add-on to your Node.js servers, which was basically telling you in a real-time fashion how your server is performing. And it appeared that the community really liked this idea. And it kind of satisfied me because it showed me that I can also achieve, I would say, great things uh, in a totally different field. And that gave me this, this faith that, yeah, I can really replicate this success again and create something really nice. Um, after that, I've tried also doing that more and more, also in the open source space. But <laughs> guess what? <laughs> it also wasn't so easy and it also wasn't possible uh, because other things that I've published weren't as close as popular or, or even cool. Because sometimes it's just based on luck. You just came up with some really great idea. You add a decent execution to it and you have something that really catches up. So 
for the next, I would say, three or four years, I was trying to create something. Um, I was coming up with ideas like two or three per day. I was um, noting them in my notepads, trying coming back to them every week, thinking about them. Um, most of the time, I came to the conclusion that, you know, it's a garbage. I need to think about something else. So I was, I kept thinking, 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 but, and the life came by, I joined the CGS project. And um, one day, uh, Reinhardt, uh, a really great man and architect, um, said to me that we are going to build something new, which is going to XHQ. And it's going to be this super new um, API powered by serverless, powered by DynamoDB. Uh, and, and it's going to be a really exciting engineering challenge. Are you in? And I was like, yeah, sure, of course. I'm going to join this project. Like, I, I, would, I, would, I would love to lead it. So, yeah, we started making some design decisions and we made the bet on serverless technologies, including the DynamoDB. DynamoDB is, uh, some people call it the first fully, it's fully managed by AWS. You don't see any machines, you don't see any containers. You just get some tables from Amazon. You can push data, you can query the data, you can delete some data, and that's it. You don't see operating system, you don't see any machines, machines, networks, anything like that. You just get the data, manipulate the data. Um, so we started learning DynamoDB. Um, the development started. We created a really decent API. Um, but as we were developing it, we, we saw that the interaction with the DynamoDB from the visual perspective was really annoying. The product was great. The DynamoDB is, is, is super cool. Um, I mean, during the prime day of 2019, proved to serve something like 5 million transactions per second, which is an amazing uh, score for, for non-relational non database. I mean, Amazon is using them. It's, Amazon is using DynamoDB for their um, main business. So it's definitely good, right? But as I mentioned before, it appeared that if you'd like to debug, debug something visually, if you'd like to find a special record, match it with the other one, um, correlate some data, find patterns, filter data, sort the data, it's really annoying. I mean, the, the, the UI was, was really not there. And especially if you are working on multiple tables, um, on multiple AWS accounts, it was horrible. You had to have not only multiple tabs opened inside your Chrome browser, but you also needed to have multiple Chrome browsers open. So it was really frustrating experience sometimes to spot a bug. And I was like, there has to be a better way, right? This UI is really suboptimal. And I've kept looking. It appeared that there is no really good UI. I mean, like, there were some open source alternatives that you can, yeah, you can insert the item. Deleting doesn't work, but there's a pull request somewhere. Classical open source community. Uh, so I decided, like, yeah, um, DynamoDB is great. It's, it's gaining a lot of traction, a lot of attention. 
um, AWS is pushing it forward. So maybe that's the thing that I could start working on, right? So I've made a bet and started developing it. Um, initially, I wanted to make it open source, free for the developer community, so everyone could use it. But I've realized, like, I've been doing open source for, I don't know, four or five years, and it gave me next to nothing. I mean, like, being totally selfish. Um, of course, maybe it helps some developers, but from purely egoistic standpoint, I, I've sacrificed a lot of hours and sometimes I received messages like, you know, this pull request that you've worked on for four or five hours is garbage and it broke our production. So yeah, it's not only happiness and, you know, good things in open source software. So after all those commitments and, um, sacrifices in open source space, I, deci I, I decided to make this thing actually a paid product. And I've decided to try to release something totally new, a product which is not a game, a product which is paid, a um, product which is for developers, for the experts. And yeah, see how it goes. So the idea appeared somewhere around August. And I was so pumped about this idea and I was so excited that I came from the very idea to the first prototype in a month. Uh, I was working after hours a lot. It was, it was really crazy. But this is what happens when we are driven uh, by the passion, by, by this intrinsic motivation that I've mentioned before. Um, so yeah, I, I thought I have a decent product <laughs> because I've created something that worked for me. But then came the other part, which is not only the engineering, but also, you know, reshaping this engineering thing into a product. I mean, creating the marketing, visual identity, name, all the things that make it actually sellable. And <laughs> that was harsh because I realized that it's really not easy. I can create something that I think is great, but convincing other people that it's great, it's so great that you're going to pay for that, like 100 bucks, for instance. It's totally a different thing. And I have zero idea about how to do that. <laughs> so after. Yeah, so after releasing the product and being super excited about that, um, the reality showed to me that, no, that's not super easy and the, the market is it's really brutal. Uh, I felt like I was defeated, but um, I was contacted by one guy who was using this product from the alpha stage. He was very satisfied and he said like, you know what? This is a really promising thing. It really works well. It helps me on a daily basis. But I see that you struggle with the marketing, with the reshaping this thing into something that you can sell. I can help you. Let's, you know, I can join you. Let's let's do it together. And I was like, yeah, why not? I have nothing to, to lose. 
I mean, like I've created, I've, I've committed so many hours already. I'm not generating any revenue. So maybe this guy can really help me. And literally the only research I've made about him, I've visited his LinkedIn page. I've scrolled through his experience. It showed me that, yeah, his experience. And it was like, yeah, let's do it. We signed a contract which, which was less than a one page long. It said that we are um, together acting in a goodwill. Basically, that was it. We are splitting the profits and the losses 50-50. And we go. And it appeared to be really a great decision because right now Dynobase is really a profitable product, pays my bills. Uh, we are seeing a great growth trajectory. We have many satisfied customers and it's really, really positive. Um, I've learned so many things from this journey. I've learned so many things from my partner and it's, it's just amazing to see other people mailing to you every day that, yeah, this is really a good thing. This is really useful. I'm going to pay for that. And apart from just earning money from software, there is so much joy from this human factor when someone appreciates your work. And yeah, there is so much value in those conversations, in those appreciations, and about all those partnerships and people that I've met through this process. So I think it's not just a product for money, but it's also a product to, to meet other people, to hear their stories, to make something for them and to collaborate with them. Uh, so I think it's really a, a gateway or an entry point to something really much more bigger. And I really like it so far. <laughs> that story is just awesome. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> I think a lot of developers and really just people in general, they want to do what you've done. You know, they want to be able to build and release their own product or even just a side project, maybe an open source project. But I think there's a, there's a critical tipping point that happens between that thought of, you know, I'm starting to work on this thing and that other point of, I'm actually going to see this through. I am going to make sure this happens. And so, what was it that helped you, you know, cross that tipping point? What helped you finally sort of say, oh, I've trashed all these other ideas, but this is the one I'm going to commit to and I'm not letting go of it. I am not done yet uh, pushing it forward. So how do you make that, that push? Because I think a lot of people get stuck at that tipping point. And what's the secret to, to pushing past it? So I have something like a framework for validating my ideas. When I scribble an idea in my note uh, notebook. I wait a week after I commit anything to, to it. So I'm trying to think about the competition. I'm trying to think about possible obstacles. I'm trying to validate this idea. And after that, I'm taking an action. And, you know, those, those, those obstacles they are naturally coming by because you know I, I can I can think that I have a great idea for two or three days, but I take shower on a fourth day and I realize that no, that's 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 totally not 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 it. It's not gonna work. 
Um, so I think it sometimes it just you know lack and opportunities because as I mentioned, if I wouldn't met Reynard, if I wouldn't um, have that project proposed, and if I wouldn't start developing this API, I wouldn't have a need to solve my own problem. Um, and actually, that's the way that you can find really good ideas for your products. It's solving your own problems with software and seeing if other engineers also have that problem. So that's exactly the thing that I've done. Um, after I saw this problem for myself, I've reached to other X-teamers asking that, hey, I've heard that you're working with DynamoDB. Tell me, are you also so annoyed by this, this, this? And he was like, yeah, exactly. That's my point. And yeah, so I've asked a few people. Almost everyone shared the same pains. So I was like, yeah, okay, I have a confirmation from, let's say, five experts in this field. They all share the same pains. So I'm here to solve it. And, you know, if, if those engineers had that problem only inside X-Team, there's definitely more people outside of it. And there's definitely more people who would love to see solution to such problem. And that was basically it. It took me something like a, just a week from the initial idea, from the inception of idea that, you know, I will create a UI for DynamoDB, to actually committing really, really hard to it. That's amazing. Rafael, you've inspired us so much today. Thank you for coming on ForwardConf. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. This roundtable is not done yet, and you can join it. Jump into the ForwardConf channel on Slack and you'll find some of the talking points from this episode that we're discussing further in depth together. There's a bounty reward for participating, so go join in, dive into this world with us more. And while you're in the ForwardConf channel, check out the pinned post there to learn more about the giveaways, new vault items, and all the events going on this week. Until next time, may the X be with you. Thank you.